Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Well, welcome. Welcome to the end of the year news here on uh, December 31st. What I discovered today is that I've had the same song stuck in my head for three days. And I said that out loud to the person I share a life with. And she said, I said, I've got the same song stuck in my head for three days. She said, I know. What is that song? And then I realized that she had had to listen to me absentmindedly singing the same six bars of that song for three days. And that can't have been pleasant. So I apologize. Um, So today, it's the end of the year. Uh, Every year, what we do at the end of the year is we try to gather up more than our usual complement of nose panelists, Uh, two or three being the usual number of nose panelists per episode. We do have seven today, uh, and we sort of rush them at the microphone and then rush them away from the microphone. We used to have to do that physically in the the studio, Uh, but of course, everybody's on by Zoom today. So we are. We're going to talk about what kind of year it was in culture. You'd think we would know since we have to do a show like this all the time. But as I said before, I'm not sure we do. Uh, So uh, let me tell you who's (laughs) – I've got to make sure I know who's here in the first segment. Here in the first segment, Rebecca Castellani, co-founder of Quiet Corner Communications and freelance writer. Rich Holland, uh, principal at CoLab, founder of Free Center and commissioner on cultural affairs for the city of Hartford. To that end, he would like you to know about the photography exhibit All That Remains at the Charter Oak Cultural Center in Hartford through January 13th. Get over there if you're going out in public and seeing things like photography exhibits. Uh, which will come up, actually, on the show today. Okay, now I've lost the track of the list of people. Irene Papoulis teaches writing at Trinity College, and Bill Usman, professor of media studies at Sacred Heart University. So, yeah, I think here in the first segment, uh, we're going to talk about just sort of you know whether, whether there was culture that really spoke to us. Uh, oh, by the way, yes, that photography exhibit is Rich Holland's pho- uh, photography, so you should absolutely go and see it uh, if you're going to photography exhibits. So, um we're going to talk very specifically about whether there was culture that kind of spoke to us, spoke powerfully to us. We're also going to talk in the second segment about ourselves as audience. You know, have we become a different kind of audience for culture uh, under the unusual circumstances we have of consuming culture? And then right at the end of the final segment, we'll try to leave a lot of time so each of the seven panelists can mention one thing that they want you to know about. So, um, so we should also say that you know, there's a lot of emailing that goes on usually before the nose. Uh, so our, our producer, uh, Jonathan, or Count uh, McPantula or whatever, he, he likes to count things is the point. And he counted 118 emails uh, that were sent about today's show. So that's a lot. Um, and, and so, I'm, Rich, I'm going to have you get us started because I think you got us started with the emails too. It's, it's probably your fault that we have 118 emails. But um, – but, you know, I mean, one of the things we were trying to kind of nail to the wall like Quicksilver is, you know, is there a way in which culture played a meaningful role for us in, in you know, inter- uh, interpreting, experiencing uh, our lives as lived and the cult- society we live in? Or did we just use it to escape? Or I don't know. This is a very nebulous question, but but do with it what you wish. It's a nebulous question. I'm still finding myself going one. Ha, ha, ha. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, let's see. I don't, I think that um, this year specifically, 
uh, culture feels like um, it took a pause. And, uh, and I think as we were emailing, I was having some issues with that. But in hindsight, I think I'm okay with that. I think that um, it's okay that we have some uh, fallow season. Um, uh, uh, I think also in terms of um, uh, what could we be consuming right now? Um, uh, there's so much truth that's being, or truthiness being played out in the media. So we're, uh, we're living uh, a lot of what culture um, would be pointing us towards live. I think that's a, yeah, that's a great point. And I assume, uh, let me just segue over from, from you to, to Irene here, because I think it is a good segue. Um, I assume one of the things Rich might be referring to, I mean, one of the things we're going to talk about here in this segment is the movie Don't Look Up. Uh, this is Adam McKay's comedy about a society that's unable to process meaningfully the fact that it's facing extinction from a comet uh, heading straight towards Earth. And, and, and um, well, actually, let me stay with you for a second, Rich, and say, I assume one of the things that you're saying is that one of the challenges for a, a piece of culture like that is how do you make it sort of get a 3,000-foot view of a culture that is already completely ridiculous and, and suffering from the very precise disease that, that McKay wants to tell us about? Well, yeah, that's, a, that's exactly the point. And what's the, what's the form of distribution that's going to get us there? Right. Um, uh, it seems as though uh, the uh, the metaphor or the you know the fable approach isn't getting us to the the reckoning of where we are right now at this point in time. Um, it doesn't seem as though uh, um, the you know media is getting us there either. And I think that we're also in this place where we're intensely isolated right now. And if there's anything that um, that culture has taught us over the years. Is um, is the need uh, for um, uh, for actually coming together, for being in common spaces, uh, in order to uh, to have um, protracted empathy and and understanding of the effects of our behaviors or the effects of you know of what's happening around us on each other, and uh, and in that state of isolation that we're in right now. Um, um, it becomes incredibly difficult uh, to to treat any of what's going on as real or in any way other than you know than with this base of kind of self serving narcissism. So um, um, let me let me segue from there over to um, to Irene now. So Irene, one of the places that you go to that you've gone to this year, I just know from our our exchanges, you know, is a, maybe a movie like Don't Look uh, Now, Don't Look Up. Don't Look Now is a terrific movie, by the way. <laughs> I hope that some people in the course of trying to find Don't Look Up, watch the movie, the Nicholas Rogue movie, Don't Look Now. It's really good. But um, uh, Don't Look Up or a movie or a series like Succession, which is, you know, each of these things invites us to laugh at problems. In, in the case of Succession, it's monstrous one percent, one percenters, uh, you know, overseeing a sort of Tucker Carlson type media empire. In the case of uh, Don't Look Up, it's a similar kind of thing. So I don't know. Tell me about how, how your interaction with those kinds of works uh, affects you. Well, it's interesting uh, because Rich said, you know, it's not going to, culture isn't going to get us there. And so I'm thinking, what gets us there? You know, there's the cynicism and there's the hope. To me, you know, and I think the cynicism really makes us want to see culture that just is an escape. 
it's not really about what's going on now. It's just a way to like watch a murder mystery from Scandinavia or whatever. But for me, don't look now is on the hopeful side. You know, don't look it, up. Don't look up. I've, I mean, I've reckoned look, every. I root. <laughs> there's also. The, well, I have to say, a movie I loved is um, "Don't Look Away," yeah. which is also about the role of art in in culture. But it came out a few years ago. There's but, also so, there's yeah. also "Don't Look Back," the uh, Dylan movie. It could get very confusing <laughs> here, but we're we're with up right now. Anyway, continue. Right, um, and. I think, I mean, I think I slightly um, disagree with you, Rich, in the sense that uh, I think watching a movie like Don't Look Up makes me feel uh, more motivated or more like awake or more wanting to be a part of the culture and and doing something, you know, like see, recognizing that recognizing the problem in a in a in a very stark and interesting and also funny way. And that makes me that makes me feel connected to the filmmakers and it makes me connected to the spirit of resistance in a way that succession, even though I absolutely love that show, um, doesn't, doesn't make me really want to do anything except kind of roll my eyes and laugh and appreciate something about the way they constructed it. All right. So Bill, I'm going to turn this over to you too. I know you just uh, watched Don't Look Up so we can stay with that for a second. But, you know, in a world that includes, I feel like the guy who does the, the, the trailers, in a world, in, in a world that includes, I don't know, Marjorie Taylor Greene and her Jewish space lasers, I think it's really hard to do satire right now. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that um, McKay is getting bashed for in a lot of the reviews is that it's heavy handed um, and there's not a lot of subtlety there that he is screaming at us <laughs> to look up uh, maybe a little bit too hard. I know I'm looking up, I'm looking away and I'm looking at the man behind the curtain. Uh, but I know that a lot of us aren't. And um, I, I agree with that critique of don't look up, but I still got a lot out of it. Um, there were things that I liked about it, you know, just as an Adam McKay vehicle, his kind of little stylistic touches that resonate with me. But as I said in our emails, I think for me, the main problem is he intends this as an intervention. And there's a little logical problem there because based on the very logic that he's critiquing in the film, it's not going to work as an intervention. So then you start really like running down the path toward nihilism. And I think Irene was kind of alluding to this. Um, I, I don't, I don't know what to do with that. I don't, you know, I don't want us to go a nihilistic path. And there was, unlike Rich, there was a lot of culture for me that spoke to me and lifted me up this year. Um, but it's, you know, it's my, my heart and my head are working at opposite purposes for each other because my head is saying nihilism while my heart is still begging for some type of optimism. But, but, but Bill, so you don't think there was any hope? You think that movie was nihilistic? Don't look up? Well, yeah. <laughs> I, I do too. I mean, I don't want to do any spoilers. I was going to say, <laughs> don't spoil the ending, but <laughs> doesn't end well. I oh. definitely don't, disagree, but yeah, it's hard to talk yeah. about the ending. I guess uh, what I would say is that that because I don't think it's going to work as an intervention, um, right. but maybe that's just me. 
So, Rebecca, yeah, I, Rebecca, I know you've seen the movie, too, and I, I definitely want to hear what you think about it, too. But I think also one of the reasons I wanted you to be in this segment, too, is I, I feel like you and I knew that the pandemic was coming because we read the book Station obviously. Eleven. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, mm-hmm. and Station Eleven, by the way, is a book. I think you and I both had the experience of basically just mortgaging everything else in our lives uh, yes. until we finished the book. Um, Correct. And so and now we see it realized on screen. I'm I'm feeling pretty effectively. I mean, if there's a piece of culture that I can think of from this year that might help me, you know, think a little bit more about the situation yeah. I'm in, it might be that one. Yeah, I, you know, had a rich diet of every dystopian epidemic pandemic series you could write. I read it before the pandemic, so I felt uniquely prepared for this. But I have found that now that we are living through a disaster scenario, I am more interested in art that deals with the aftermath, which Station Eleven does masterfully. How does one live in the aftermath of nihilism, which I think is the place to explore. I think that the art that stood out to me this year explored that. I'm thinking of Bo Burnham's Inside. I mean, really illustrating what it's like to live through a really crazy, isolated, scary, traumatic, and also, you know, sort of irreverent time. And I, I think that art that, to me, I can look back on this year and said had some effect on me are things like that. And Station Eleven is a great example. I am finding that though there are five or six episodes out, I cannot binge it. I've been watching it once a week and not anymore, which is very rare for this year. Usually everything I just consume in one crush of (laughs) inside despair, but I'm really kind of taking my time with Station Eleven and trying to absorb its lessons in a way that I kind of didn't with the book, because as you said, Colin, I just plowed through it wanting to know what happened, but I'm, I'm trying to kind of go slow with the show. And it reminds me in some ways, the same idea of like why the leftovers appealed to me so much. Like I know that Bill's read the book that that's based on too, the Tom Parada novel, but just the idea of like how yeah, society, great. we move past nihilism. Like, what do you do when you're staring that void in the face? And I think, unfortunately, that's kind of our cultural moment right now. I don't usually do this, but I have to, <laughs> there's often like another show going on the Slack channel here. Uh, and so Cat Pastor has just texted me on Slack saying, if Station Eleven happens, please just kill me. I'm Jewish. I can't, I'm Jewish. I can't live my life camping. Um, so I'm with you, Kat. I we can go out together. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you, yeah. Kat. But there is, a, yeah, there is that way in which the, we should say that Station Eleven. This doesn't spoil anything, but you know, it begins with the pandemic, a much more lethal and destructive, scouring pandemic pandemic than the one we're going through right now. And then a, a lot of the focus afterwards is on two things. Uh, one of them is this sort of graphic novel, comic book kind of thing from which the thing derives its name. The other is Shakespeare, or this mm-hmm. constant reinterpretation of Shakespeare. And, and you know, m- maybe just rich to swing back to you. You know, mm-hmm. one of the other things that culture does when culture is working well is nourish uh, us. And it doesn't necessarily have to be completely, you should pardon the expression, on the nose about the thing. I mean, I feel like Don't Look Up is too on the nose about everything that it's trying to talk to us about. But there's a way in which I think we are kind of hungry to get nourished by art, maybe hungrier yeah. than we've ever been before. Well, I, I think... Absolutely. Right. We're exactly that hungry. And, and I mean, I was thinking, uh, I, we're hungry and then there's a, there's, there's a pickle, right? That, um, that uh, for example, consuming what was meant to be on the big screen on the small box, for me, leaves me feeling kind of flat, like I'm cheating on a lever, right? Um, uh, because that big screen experience mattered to me and the translations 
uh, from big screen to small screen don't always work as well as we think, right? So there's some challenges that are happening at this point in time as well. Um, I think that um, that there that there is hope, right? So um, uh, I'm not going to go on. I'm, I'm not going to join Bill on a full-on nihilistic uh, um, uh, rage as much as I think that, that would be fun. Um, uh, I no one seems to ever want to join me on that. It no. sounds like fun, though, Bill. One day, just not today. It is fun. Um, nihilistic fun. Um, but I think where where the hope exists is, I guess, where I started this whole thing with is that what do we do uh, with fallow ground? Um, uh, we have the option right now and the takeaway uh, from uh, from now I'm going to call it don't look back, don't look up, is uh, is that we could, I could take that thing in much like you did, Irene, and uh, not have hope in the outcome outside of myself, but decide that, you know, maybe I could step away from this. Mm. Um, you know, maybe I could make the move away from this place where um, where the fight continues you know and maybe if we all just step away and let the and let the fallow be fa let the ground be fallow and rebuild itself uh we have some hope um but i think what a movie like that is pointing out and what i've been seeing a lot in culture lately is this attempt to you know to resolve this thing um and i don't know that uh, we're in a place where we can actually resolve much of anything at all so okay uh, i want to swing back to rebecca because i could tell you had something to say about that idea of kind of culture feeding us yeah i mean i think the biggest lesson for me in station 11 is being nourished by the past and the things in the past that stand the test of time so shakespeare being the ultimate example i mean if you're feeling that the current moment is fallow we have an extraordinary wealth of past content at our fingertips at any given moment. And I found that that's been kind of a crutch for me during the pandemic is revisiting things that I love and never fail to deliver, experiencing things that have occurred in the past that I didn't get to experience the first time around, such as The Sopranos, which has been a defining watch for my year. I mean, I just think that when in doubt, like there is a wealth of human history to draw from. And as we've seen, you know, Colin, you're watching the wheel of time. It's all just a wheel, baby. It's just going to keep <laughs> repeating. So you might as well draw some lessons from the past. Yeah, I, I think don't look up is trying to say that too, though. You know, like it's saying yeah. we have the ingenuity. We have the ingenuity Definitely. now. We have we it. We can fix it. Yeah. yeah. All right. We have to pause there. Um, I have so much more that we could uh, conceivably say. But uh, one thing that I was quickly say at the end is the, the one of the the other piece of culture in in Station Eleven is this sort of graphic novel comic book. And maybe this is something to talk to Raquel about on the other side of the break. But there's a way in which the Imaginers really did, whether their it was Emily St. John Mandela or whatever her name is who who wrote the book or, or who the person who in, within that uh, who wrote this kind of imagined book. Yeah. There's a way in which the Imaginers really already knew all this stuff was coming, and that's another thing culture does. Or can do really do you, well. Do you find that reading the book first really helped you watch it? Do you recommend it? I think watch it first, then it's, read the book, but I don't know. Yeah. I, I, that's what I would do. It's a really, you could talk about that for 40 minutes, right. like the debate <laughs> of how to consume it. It's yeah. great. All right, we got to take a break. We'll come back with a whole different panel, except for the Papulian through line, Irene Papoulis. And then my dumb heart says, just look.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. We are back. This is the end of the year nose in which we bravely bring together way more panelists than we can easily accommodate uh, to talk about the end of the year and culture. So in this segment, we'll have Raquel Benedict uh, claims to be the most dangerous woman in speculative fiction. I have no reason to contravene her. Uh, she's the host of the RIT Right GUD podcast. Uh, Sam Hattleman works in public uh, mu- public music public relations and hosts the Sam Hattleman Show on Radio Free Brooklyn. James Hanley is co-founder of Sydney Studio at Trinity College. Irene Papoulos, you already remember her from the first segment, teaches uh, writing at Trinity College. So, yeah, I mean, you know, one thing that we know about culture is that there are creators of culture and then there's consumers of culture and not to get all Harold Bloom about it, but the the consumers of culture play theoretically maybe even a bigger role than the creators. So how we consume and who we are when we're consuming is a really interesting question. And I think it was different this year. And James, I mean, this is a a tune that you've played before on the show, but I think you always have new things to say about it. But I mean, you've existed for most of your professional life, maybe all of your professional life, in a world where ideally people gather, they watch a certain kind of thing under a certain set of circumstances, then they filter out into the lobby and talk about it with people that they may or may not have ever met before and and on and on and on and that whole covenant is is really disrupted right now so what are your thoughts about it well i think it's a major disruption and it's really hasn't fully played out yet um it's interesting uh, that the some of the hints of this uh, i remember uh, being um having a conversation with a student who had never seen um, uh, some of the major classics, in particular Citizen Kane, and uh, I suggested that she saw it. And uh, as it happened, she had a limited time, I guess, but she saw it at double speed. And um, <laughs> I had quite a discussion with her about whether she actually saw the same movie that, yeah. that you know, this was like consuming art, making sure that you could sort of generally say, well, yes, I saw it, but um, this sort of threads through to current situations where because art is being consumed in different ways and for understandable reasons why people are afraid to gather, um, I think that then you have a situation where people are not quite sure of what they've seen very often and conversation about things that have been shared often leads to insights that make you go back and take a look and and maybe reconsider what you thought you saw. And um, I'm thinking, for instance, of uh, a recent uh, film that really blew me away, um, 
was The Lost Daughter that's just showing um, Maggie Gyllenhaal's new film. Um, that really, that's a film that requires following the thread continuously. And I can't imagine taking breaks or being, or watching it at double speed, for example. Um, but uh, if you did, I think you'd miss a lot of the nuance of that film. And um, this is something that is not just about film. I think it's about theater as well. Um, theater that is being recorded and played. Uh, the National Theater Live is one example. Generally, that's done as a kind of occasional occasion event. Although I think there's great pressure to, to go streaming with all of those things. And in streaming, everything, all the rules can be thrown out. You can stop and start, you can change speed, you can experience art in a very different way and then not be able to have the conversation about what you've seen. I think these are major seismic shifts that haven't played out really yet. Yeah. Uh, by the way, The Lost Daughter, which James just referenced, I'm being told by uh, Mr. McPants, it's uh, dropping on Netflix today. That's not going to make James happy. He doesn't want to you to watch it on Netflix. <laughs> but, but it is out there that way. So, Raquel, you know, one of the other ways in which we're an audience, or some people are an audience, is kind of a community of interest. And it seems to me that that, that whole world uh, of speculative fiction and science fiction, fantasy, whatever we want to talk about in that genre, is a world where people can find ways to share without watching it, everything all at once uh, in, in the same venue. I don't, can you talk about that a little bit? Does that, does that help in, in making you feel a little bit, like I said earlier in, in our emails, I feel like audience now means people in my house. <laughs> but I don't know, Raquel, does it help you open the door and, and get out to, to, to the other people? I, I I do think that people in, in an increasingly atomized and alienated society see media consumption as almost a promise to a sense of community, especially in, especially for geeks and nerds. Consuming certain geeky movies makes you part of a community, right? Like people who like Doctor Who, they refer to themselves as Whovians. People who like the Harry Potter franchise will refer to themselves as, oh, I'm a Hufflepuff, I'm a this, I'm a that. But I do think that there's something to say in that it's a false promise. I, I do think that consuming something, not necessarily simultaneously, I, I don't think it adds to a real community. There, There's sharing a communal experience with your friends or in a theater or even just watching a movie with friends across Zoom during the pan early days of the pandemic, that is something of a real communal experience. Watching the same movie as other people and then having your hot take, your your required hot take about it online, it's not real. <laughs> it's not real. It's a false promise. I'm sorry. It's not quite as good. And while I understand why people go to that, because that is much more accessible and especially in the days of the pandemic. I mean, when you're thinking about going to see a movie, you have to genuinely weigh your willingness to see it and your willingness to risk catching the Omicron variants against maybe I should just watch this at home. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't know. I just tried a new Demotex 
uh, in 95, and I thought, oh, yeah, I could probably sit there in the movie theater watching this. However, my glasses would be fogging up a lot. So, right. um, so Sam, actually, I think you – did you go to the movies last night? I can't remember. I know. I, I went to the movies uh, three days ago to go see Licorice Pizza. Okay. Mm-hmm. And did you see the okay. Spider-Man, Spider-Man movie in the movie theaters too? Oh, yeah. I also And let me also say I have been a crazy person about lockdown. Don't think that I'm like just because I'm 24. I've been out and about. I'm a grumpy old man. So I stay at home. I listen to records. I make my own coffee. But yes, I did go to the theaters to go see Spider-Man as well. I mean, it seems to me that one of the things that you do, Sam, and a lot of us on this uh, show do in different ways, and maybe the show itself, The Nose, uh, does, is to try to create that sense of community. You do it uh, both on your radio show and uh, on the commentaries that that you write. It's sort of that thing that James is saying that I think is so important, which is, what's the thing I didn't see? that I need to know because because nobody ever absorbs something 100 percent. Right. We, we need help. We need to help each other. Uh, I think I'm kind of a narcissist. I'm a, I'm a little bit of a narcissist. I'm totally <laughs> fine absorbing. Like I, I keep my life very separate. There's the things that I enjoy that I like to analyze that I'll go and look up a book about just so I can understand the betting, the ending better. And then there's things, you know, I did kind of miss that communal feeling. Like when I went to go see Spider-Man, seeing grown men dressed as Spider-Man in the multiples was so like fun. It was so nostalgic. Like I completely forgot that these communities even existed of like 40 year old accountants who at night dress up in tights and go to the movie theaters in Milford. Like that's a, that's crazy. Like seeing like groups of little teens arguing over which Spider-Man was the coolest, like seeing that communal interaction really warmed my heart. And, you know, it kind of reminded me not to be so crass that, you know, I don't have to watch every movie completely by myself at my house or listen to albums completely by myself. I can engage people again. And I feel like I kind of lost that during the pandemic. Um, there, but there's probably some Raquel probably knows the name of whatever community it is that wears Spider-Man tights to uh, uh, to Spider-Man <laughs> movies. And there may be several different names, actually, for that community. Uh, I want to know if there's some community of people who watch uh, Orson Welles movies performed by Alvin and the Chipmunks. Uh, it, psychos, know, psychos. <laughs> you know, Rosebud, Rosebud, Rosebud. So, Irene, well, you know, one of the things we, we were talking about getting ready for the show is the whole question of comedy, the things that make us laugh. And and I, to me, uh, I, we'll eventually get back to James on this because I think it's big. To me, this is one of the areas where audience is really important. If you don't watch a funny movie with an audience, you're going to have a really, really different experience. And I think we've gotten probably a little bit more subjective and maybe even solipsistic about comedy because we consume most of it alone or, or once again, with the immediate people in our household. So I don't know what I expect you to say about that, but, but you'll, you'll say something. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's maybe it's, it's kind of related to what I was thinking uh, before you asked that question, which is how much you value, you know, you trust it, 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 you know, like, does your, does your idea of something being funny, are you saying, so I guess you're saying that if you, if the whole audience is laughing a lot, then you're going to think it's funnier. Well, I might've um, liked don't look up better. I didn't like don't look up. Uh, I might've liked it better if I'd seen it with an audience that was making merry. I, I don't know. I, I, there's no guarantee. Yeah. I guess for, for those kind of, uh, yeah, for certain moments, uh, like Meryl Streep, I thought was really funnier than she's been in a long time in that. And, and right. If you'd heard, heard the the audience laughing at her, maybe it would have been a little, a, a little bit different, but, um, I, I'm also, also thinking about judgment and the way we feel about others judgment, you know, so it's one thing to, to, to feel bonded with an audience because you're all in it together. Um, but I think it's another thing i'm interested in the experience of saying like i love that i thought it was great and then having people i respect like you about about don't look up say oh i hated it 
you know? And so that makes me think, Ooh, okay. Maybe I might, maybe I also hated it. You know, like I, I have a tendency to sort of like part of me has a tendency to want to say, okay, then I didn't like it either. And then start, I can start looking at the things that, that maybe were not so great about it. But, um, and, and, but at the same time, there's a part of me that says, no, I liked it. You didn't like it. So I'm going to fight for my position, you know? So I think there's something about lately that people, um, I mean, in a way that that's what happens with critics, you know, like you look at if Rotten Tomatoes give something a 52, then you think, oh, I probably will not like it. You know, I can, though I now have a tendency to want to say the older I get, the more I want to be stubborn about my own reaction. And maybe in that sense, I'm a narcissist, like Sam said, you know, just like I want to know what my I don't want to read any reviews. I don't care about any reviews. I want to see it and form my own opinion. And then when I read a review, maybe I'll change it. But I, I, I sort of have this have this um, and maybe that's what you meant by real Raquel about like what a real experience is. You know, do I have my own experience or do I have one that's just tempered by what other people think I'm supposed to think about it or what other people think I'm supposed to think is funny? Well, yeah. And, you know, uh, actually, I don't even know who I'm going to throw this to, but I might have to throw it back to you, Sam, because I'm the only one, uh, only person besides Irene I know has watched Succession. But people who read the Michael Shulman profile of Jeremy Strong in The New Yorker um, know, know that Jeremy Strong occasionally appears not to have understood that succession is frequently very, very funny. Uh, that might have come up there, or maybe in the sad, or in the or yeah. in the or the Kieran Culkin uh, interview with Fresh Air. I don't know. Somewhere it's like Jeremy Strong, who's playing one of the key characters, playing the role of Kendall Roy. You know, and I think I don't blame him because everything is sort of serio comic right now. There's just nobody's making rollicking madcap knockabout comedies. Yeah, uh, thank God you brought up that profile. I think I emailed you that to you yes, that you morning, did. and I was like, "Drink this with your coffee." Oh my God, I loved it. I was yeah. like, the, the, "There's so many beautiful lines in there." Like, this is life or death. Like, he doesn't get the joke. And you know, I did say that Succession was kind of Greek, and he said that in the profile. But I do think that we've entered an era of comedy that I was thinking before. I'm like, what happened to like the slapsticks? What happened? Like, I feel like that's kind of like aired out, and now it's kind of all about being meta. It's like, oh, am I supposed to think this is funny or is this not funny? Um, and I think definitely the isolation has added to that. But I did want to make one point that Irene said about, you know, um, like audience and what we think is funny. I've watched a lot of stuff with my mom this year. I admittedly I've watched more TV with my mother than I'd like to admit. And I feel like our laughter is enough to fill the room that I don't really care what anybody else thinks. But I do love think pieces. I am very like set in my views. I feel like someone who didn't really have like, no one showed me movies. No one showed me music. I found this stuff on the internet. So being bred from that culture, I'm fine reading a review and keeping in my own thoughts and keeping my own opinions. I, I welcome argument, as everybody knows. You know what I mean? I like discourse. So I Do you think, think your peers are like that, though? Would you you my, peers? my peers or my parents? Peers. No, no, your peers. Oh, no, my peers are, they're all sheep. I mean, anybody under the age of 25 is just run by whatever tweet <laughs> some culture critic at the New York Times tweets out, and then they go talk about it with their friends at their local coffee shop. I'm different. I'm not saying like, oh, I'm different. I'm just, I, I think a lot of people get their cultural zeitgeist from their parents, from an older brother. I'm an only child, and my parents are both over the age of 60. We don't really share <laughs> a lot of cultural uh 
overlap. So I, 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 I know Sam's dad pretty well. I can probably vouch for that. Or I, I want to just swing back back to you, James, because you know, I mean, as somebody who has first of all watched so many movies and screened so many movies for the rest of us, I'm wondering what you think about that thing about comedy. There are pieces being written right now, like is comedy pure comedy, something that we just go to and laugh at? Is is that uh, an endangered species? And, and maybe maybe it can't survive in such a complicated environment. What are, what are your thoughts? I think there is a danger that that kind of comedy, uh, I mean, that, that to me, there's a, uh, you know, a broader comedy or a comedy that is shared that you, re- you, you sort of reflect on the people you're with you who people who've experienced it, or even if you've shared watching it on online and you, you share thoughts about it, but the sort of comedy that is dynamic, say with a, with a comedian or, or even a movie actually, that actually you feel the audience. One particular example to me would be a film that, that for example, plays right in the middle of being tragic and comic, and you feel half the audience is like weeping at this and very uncomfortable, and the other half is is laughing their heads off. That sort of experience, I think, is um, <clears throat> in, in the absence of the, of the shared environment to enjoy that that kind of comedy. I mean, I have a feeling it'll come back, of course, but not a, not under the current circumstances. I think that comedy, as it stands now, as it's experienced, um, as has been this conversation over the past few minutes, I think it's something in a way that is a sort of angular appreciation of of a personal sort of irony and understanding of the comedy in a certain way, but is very different from that shared sense of what's funny. All right. We're almost going to go to break here. But Raquel, I want to end with you. Just I want to kind of maybe even link back to something that Rebecca and I were talking about in the A, because one of the things that I think the past two years has taught me is that the writers of speculative fiction really are seeing around corners. We did a whole show about this. We've found people who'd written speculative fiction about a pandemic where people started baking more. I mean, they, they wrote that before all this happened. And, and it made me think, you know, when they have like blue ribbon panels about stuff, they should put people who create create this stuff because they're thinking about the future in a much more elaborate and deep way. And I guess I sort of wonder how you as part of that community, as a as a creator within that community, do you watch the rest of us and go, you mean you didn't know that was going to happen? <laughs> well, I regarding how a lot of times it seems like speculative fiction is predicting the future, I think what actually is happening is instead of really predicting the future, uh, what they were doing was taking inspiration from the past like our current pandemic has unfurled in a way that's very strongly parallel to the 1918 spanish flu epidemic Mm -hmm. so i'm wondering if if maybe some of these speculative fiction writers who wrote about about uh baking during the pandemic and, and masks or whatever during a pandemic were drawing from inspiration from history and, and from their own history. So it's not so much being about predicting the future as it is about being able to actually pay attention to the past and learn from it. Imagine which doing is that. a rare thing. <laughs> yeah, so, um, imagine needing specialists for that. Uh, all right. So we're going to grab a quick break here. I'm actually right on schedule, which is amazing. Uh, and when we come back, each of our panelists will very quickly tell you about something they want you to know about. Make them laugh. Don't you know everyone wants to laugh? Ah, ah, 
my dad said, be an actor, my son. But be a comical one, they'll be standing in lines for those old honky-tonk monkey shines. Or you could study Shakespeare and be quite elite. And you could charm the critics and have nothing to eat. Just slip on a banana peel, the world's at your feet. Make them laugh, make them laugh, make them laugh. Make, make them laugh. All right. Uh, it's time for me at the end of the year to thank Kat Pastor for the amazing work that she does as our technical producer. Uh, also thanking uh, Jonathan McPants for producing today's episode and for so many great episodes this year. Great, It's great to work with great people. Uh, Lily Tyson, who's become our senior producer, uh, is uh, definitely in that category. So is senior producer emeritus Betsy Kaplan, who's still producing episodes for us. So is Julia Pistel. Uh, Jennifer LaRue is going to uh, do a couple for us at the start of the year. So it's great also to be working with a lot of really good people, uh, which I get to do here. All right. So there's about 10 minutes left and we have seven panelists. Let's see uh, whether we can do this or not. Uh, each one's going to tell you about something that was meaningful in one way or another to them this year. Bill Usman, why don't you get us going? All right. One of my favorite shows of the past few years and one that I do think has been overlooked is Dickinson. It's an Apple TV show. It's kind of about Emily Dickinson as a young woman, but not really. It's very deliberately anachronistic. It's got amazing performances led by Haley Steinfeld, great music, wonderful stories that are both funny and also deeply sad. I want everyone to watch this show, Dickinson. Well done. Well done. Uh, I've been to start on it in the past. I should go back to it. Rebecca Castellani, you're up next. So I don't necessarily think this was overlooked so much as it maybe got lost in the streaming shuffle. Um, and mine recommendation would be made on Netflix. Uh, it just does a fantastic job of illustrating that sort of horrifying symbiotic cycle of poverty and inescapable domestic violence. Margaret Coyley gives an incredible performance. Be prepared to cry, but it's very cathartic. So I highly recommend Made on Netflix. As we pointed out, I think, on the Nose episode, too, uh, Mar Margaret Coyley has to hold a lot of close-ups uh, in yeah. this thing. And and her face uh, really does it. Annie McDowell, her real-life mother, plays her crazy uh, fictional mother in, in it and gives a very, very uh, elaborate performance. Uh, all right. Rich Holland, uh, you're up next. Okay. So, um... What I'm going to go with is the is the idea that culture is what you were getting at a little while ago, Colin, that culture is not always about just the consumption, but it's also about the creation. And there, there's uh, some art, uh, the, the mark making, um, uh, painting and drawing uh, that tends to get overlooked in the, the culture conversation probably ever since, you know, the invention of language. Uh, when there were more interesting things to talk about, apparently, than uh, than paintings. But at this time, right now, we are making art. There's so much stuff being created, and there are folks out there using digital <laughs> media to share that art, to, to take um, unknown folks, emerging artists, and pushing them out there. Uh, for example, um, like Sachi at Sachi Art is, is pushing some incredible artists in a matter that we can construct seen them and we can own them like Bauman who's doing uh, uh, some Memento uh, Morty art and this incredible Ghanaian artist, Ghanaian artist called uh, Theophilus Tita, I can never say his name, Theophilus Tita, T-E-T-T-E-H, 
who does these beautiful paintings that are all about eyes. Mm. Um, and we could get back to now slowing down um, the, this big theatrical consumption and paying attention to the little marks. Ooh, I like I like it. Yes, the fine arts and the mark making. I, I love it. All right, Irene Papoulis, you are next. Okay, well, yeah, that set me up for breaking the rules, which I'm going to do because I I, I want to talk about. Ne- it's not don't look away. It's never look away, and it's by the a movie by the guy that made the lives of others, and it's about that exact t- its topic is the role the endurance of art in spite of of historical devastation. It's such a great movie, but it wasn't made in 2021. Never look away, but. For for 2021, the one that came to my mind is Halston, which I think was great. It was Ewan McGregor playing Halston, of all people. So absurd, but he did such a great job, and, and not enough people saw it. All right. Well, well done as well. Um, and all right, I've lost track. Uh, Sam Hadleman, uh, you're up next. What have you got for uh, us, Sam? Uh, I feel like every time I come on here, I tell some cheeky anecdote about my parents. But I'm gonna I'm gonna recommend Hotels by Jasmine Sullivan. It was NPR's number one album. Um, I had to drive my dad to the airport the other day, <laughs> and for the past ten years, I've been banned from playing music in the car. But it was my car, so I finally was in you know the dominant role. And I uh, was playing like Al Green. He was like, "Oh, do you listen to Anita Baker?" And I was like, oh, "I'll play something new." And I played Jasmine Sullivan, and he got very quiet. And very quickly, he was like, "Oh, I can relate to this. This is pretty good." And that was uh, that was my first victory with having my dad listen to my music. If you're looking for something for a little more flair in the hip hop world, uh, ESTG, this rapper from Kentucky, you know, modern rap balances between being haunting and exhilarating. And he really works at Trapeze Act quite well. So if you're a little older, Jasmine Sullivan, if you're a little younger, ESTG. All right. Uh, if you can get your dad to be quiet, uh, you've really accomplished something. <laughs> I, 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 I know your dad, Alan, pretty well. Uh, and uh, so th- that all sounds good. And yeah, I mean, Jasmine Sullivan is obviously, you know, one of the big names to really kind of erupt from this past year. So, so very good choice. James Hanley, you have the floor now. Um, the recommendation I have is for something certainly about the future and somewhat about the past. A very disturbing book, but brilliant called The Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. Highly recommended about climate, but about much more than that. And I have to say, it's one of those books where it was riveting, but I had to put it down for a week or two before I could continue with it. It was that intense. That's Ministry for the Future, Kim Stanley Robinson. Oh, that's great. Thanks uh, so much. So um, actually, everybody has been so economical that Raquel Benedict, you have you have time. You can really stretch out here, recommend a bunch of different oh things. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you, don't, you don't have that to is, do that, don't you? That yeah. is so much power. Yeah. I will go mad with it. Okay. Uh, I think the thing that has given me strength through what is becoming the second year and ending into the third year of the pandemic is finding a community of other writers and other creatives, which is even hard to do during the best of times. Uh, so one person that I'm going to give a shout out to, I, I hope this is okay because she's not super famous, is our, my friend June Martin, who refers to herself as the greatest writer in the world. And her website is, in fact, called theworldsgreatestwriter.com. Um, she's a writer of fiction, some self-published, some professionally published, who focuses on people with very strange ideas. There's a short story about a man who digs up Ruth Bader Ginsburg and wears her skin in order to save democracy. There is a very interesting procreation myth about Zeus. (laughs) I highly recommend looking for her work because she's absolutely brilliant and I think she's completely amazing and astonishingly underappreciated. 
All right. Yeah. Well, I think the Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, skin <laughs> thing is another example of speculative fiction really nailing something that's probably going to happen fairly, fairly soon. So, Absolutely. Um, so, yeah. So now I've got a little bit too much time at the end. So uh, let me just uh, – the thing that I, I think I would recommend because I think it, it's something that didn't get seen that much and, and really deserves to be seen more. I don't think any of our panel, not counting McPants who has, has seen For All Mankind, uh, which is a series of sp- piece of speculative fiction about the actual space – program going in a very, very different direction and getting uh, women astronauts involved almost from the get-go uh, and and being much more diverse and representative. And there's a lot of other things that happen uh, as a result of like little twists and turns. Uh, one emergency causes Ted Kennedy to cut short his vacation on Martha's Vineyard, so Chappaquiddick never happens and stuff like that. I will particularly endorse uh, the performance of, of an actor named Sarah Jones. She plays the astronaut uh, Tracy Stevens. I, I just she was riveting. Uh, could not possibly take my eyes off her uh, anytime she was on the screen. So uh, it's called For All Mankind. It's on Apple Plus. I'm pretty sure, right? Uh, and uh, you want to watch both seasons, obviously. But the second season actually did take place uh, this year. The other thing that I'm going to say, just you know, not only do I recommend, and I'm sure James does too, and maybe other people do watch the movie. Don't look now. <laughs> <laughs> the Nicholas Rogue movie actually has one of the most erotic love scenes between Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie, of all people, that I've ever seen anywhere. Uh, and it uses uh, Venice very atmospherically, but maybe a little bit more on point for Don't Look Up. I do recommend the uh, three-book series by Ben Winters. It's called The Last Policeman uh, series. I don't know what all the individual novels are called, but uh, it is about a, situ- a similar situation where an astral body is hurtling towards Earth. Uh, humankind is going to become extinct uh, and it's uh, in particular about a protagonist who insists on going around and solving crimes, uh, even under those circumstances. So uh, I'll recommend that one, too. All right. So I uh, want to thank so much our panel. We, we hope we can do a lot of exciting new news episodes for you. We know we will do that in the coming year. But uh, for today, thanks to Irene Papoulis, Rebecca Castellani, Rich Holland, Bill Usman, Raquel Benedict, Sam Handelman, James Hanley, uh, and uh, a special thanks to Jonathan McPants, who keeps these episodes going and then pulls clips that we don't use because we don't have time to use clips, although it turns out maybe we did this time. Thanks once again to Cat Pastor and to all of you for, you know, 12 months of staying with us during a pandemic. I hope we've been good company and informative company to you. And, and, you know, I talked about audience. We could create radio shows all day. If you didn't listen to them, they'd be some kind of Zen koan that I don't even want to think about. It's cozy, like a Cracker Barrel. Yeah, we all be laughing. Talking, joking, talking about this and talking about that. And talk about everything as a matter of fact. Oh, yeah. Talk about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington. Yeah, 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 yeah. Come on, the rain.